Chapter Nine of King and Parliament by George Henry Wakeling. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. William the Third, sixteen eighty nine to seventeen o two. William, Prince of Orange and Stadtholder of the United Provinces, was now King of England, not as Mary's husband, but together with her as the chosen successor of James he was just forty years old and had profited by his experience in a way that was to make him able to rule england and play the foremost part in european politics it has been said that william was never young he had been born and bred amid intrigues revolutions plots and had grown to manhood with the roar of french guns in his ears he was cold and hard in manner had wretched health and was personally unattractive his ambition had been to make himself and his beloved holland a power in europe and his chance had been so opportunely seized that he now hoped to add the name and resources of england to that league of augsburg which the restless louis the fourteenth had roused against himself in sixteen eighty six the pope the numerous german princes the emperor and the king of spain had long been anxious to check the daring monarch who swooped down now on the pyrenees now on italy now on the rhine or the sambre if william backed by the english nation and the english navy could lead the way there would be some chance of making headway even against so great a power as that wielded by louis the austere and forbidding nature of the new king was thus redeemed by one splendid passion love for holland and all that holland meant upon the map of europe but he was also a man of the most dauntless courage displayed alike on the field and in the council no military reverse could diminish it no political difficulties limit it and he needed it all for in england he found not enthusiasm or reverence for the deliverer but much treachery and more distrust only where he could make them see that he was working for their own immediate interests or when louis put a trump-card into his hand by attack or insult did the english nation rally round william they were jealous of his dutch favourites they knew he loved the gardens of blue better than all the attractions of kensington and that he neither loved nor admired englishmen except indeed when he watched their corpses being piled beneath the walls of a french fortress but more than this england was so far as concerns her government in a stage of transition the king above the law was no more but the law above the king was not a condition of things which could be easily substituted for the old stuart theory in a few weeks parliament was strong and divided into two hostile camps of whig and tory the tories disliked william and felt ashamed of themselves for their revolutionary conduct the whigs hated the tories and thought william should follow their example the king had no mind to become a tool of the whigs and hoped to keep both in order by playing one party against the other but he could only do so by retaining some of his kingly power and thus he gave some sections of both parties a chance to combine against him nowadays the sovereign remains in the background while the ministries composed on strict party lines replace each other when the nation is dissatisfied with the party in power 
but this cabinet government was not in william's day more than an occasional expedient and the nation had not yet learnt its power to make its wishes felt thus parliament was more powerful than was just then desirable it was free from the king without being subject to the nation the king could only manage it by choosing ministers whom it would support thus beginning that system which is now always in operation government by a cabinet with a majority in parliament to pass its measures william was throughout his reign obliged to rush backwards and forwards from the dutch frontiers to london to work a machine without which he could do nothing yet which frequently thwarted his best endeavours his greatest difficulty however arose from his own insecure position few believed that with a divided nation and a greedy watchful enemy who announced his intention by word and deed to restore the fallen stuart william could long remain king of england the jacobites as the adherents of james and his descendants were called were powerful and alert every victory of france on the continent sent a thrill of treason through the english politicians who watched the great game it is disappointing to find statesmen of all shades of opinion involved in this treachery with very few exceptions they corresponded secretly with james at st germain where he now kept up regal state at the expense of the king of france william knew and understood this and it is not the least part of his title to fame that he not only refused to take vengeance but actually contrived to work with men of whose letters to the exile he had copies in his hands we may divide the reign into five periods the first two years sixteen eighty nine to sixteen ninety one were occupied with the settlement of scotland and ireland for james and louis made a great attempt to keep william out of their path by giving him work in ireland this expedient would if successful have tied the king's hands very effectually but all fears of a jacobite ireland were allayed by the battle of the boyne from sixteen ninety two to sixteen ninety five william struggled unsuccessfully with his great foe on the continent while he contrived to keep his government efficient at home by entrusting more and more power to the whigs the death of queen mary marks the close of this second period the third consists of two years sixteen ninety five to sixteen ninety seven in which the power of france was successfully tired out while the continued domination of the whigs secured a strong war policy with the peace of ryswick sixteen ninety seven the nation led by tories ceased to support william and in the fourth period from sixteen ninety seven to seventeen o one his parliaments became more and more unmanageable while on the continent the tardy death of the spanish king raised the greatest political problem of the age just as the french king was about to seize all those gains which the english jealousy against william was pouring into his hands the death of james the second occurred the recognition of his son as king of england which louis promptly made once more stung the english into a warlike temper the fifth period from seventeen o one to seventeen o two therefore shows william and his adopted country again at one but with the last and fiercest struggle still to come 
at this moment william died the convention was at the commencement of the reign made into a legal and competent parliament and continued in session william wished to secure a moderate settlement of religion and finance so that all faithful men might serve the state and the state might be strong against france but no such simple solution was possible the toleration act sixteen eighty nine was passed but gave only relief from penal laws to those protestant dissenters who were prepared to take the oaths of allegiance and supremacy no tests or penal laws were done away with it was toleration and partial practice without the principle there was no chance of comprehension the reconciliation of protestant nonconformists to the church of england though william wished it and convocation discussed it the new oath of allegiance to william and mary was made compulsory for all officers in church or state and those who refused to take it the non-jurors as they were called lost their posts sancroft the hero of the resistance to james's declaration led a party of non-juring bishops and was deprived of his archbishopric the revenue was settled on william but parliament considered it necessary to assert the principles of the constitution by granting it only for one year at a time the whig section now began to show a violent party spirit they tried to secure their own domination by punishing those who had abetted james's illegal acts especially those who had surrendered the charters of corporation to the last two kings this together with their resistance to the bill of indemnity which was to pardon the past caused a dissolution in march of sixteen ninety a new parliament with a larger preponderance of tories gave the king a firmer position and enabled him to some extent to hold the balance of parties his ministers were drawn from both sections the chief being godolphin shrewsbury nottingham halifax and danby meanwhile in ireland william's presence had become necessary james assisted by the french had landed there in march of sixteen eighty nine and at once the national feeling so long repressed by the system which cromwell established in the english and protestant interest sprang to life james was welcome as a roman catholic but the irish thought more of securing their independence of those who had taken their land and proscribed their religion than of restoring the king the protestants entrenched themselves in londonderry and enniskillen while the irish parliament set to work to undo the settlement of sixteen sixty londonderry was relieved in july sixteen eighty nine after one hundred and five days of siege and suffering but marshal schomberg whom william sent over with a small army failed to secure dublin thus in june sixteen ninety william who then landed in ireland with large reinforcements had to face the whole rebellion with james still at its head with such a coward as james however the issue could not long be doubtful the decisive battle took place near drogheda where james hoped to defend his position behind the boyne the river was crossed and the position was stormed on july first sixteen ninety james fled to france in craven haste the fall of limerick a year later completed the defeat of the irish again the country was given up to the protestant and english settlers 
who at once more than restored the system of 1660 and utterly excluded the Roman Catholics from political power and social consideration. The French, who had for the moment a sufficient advantage at sea to make communication between England and Ireland impossible, had not managed to do so. But though William was allowed to cross, the error was partly retrieved by their occupation of the Channel, whence they drove Lord Torrington and his fleet after an engagement at Beachy Head, June 30, 1690. The English fleet, though chased to the Thames, was still powerful, and as the cause of James in Ireland was already lost, this reverse did little for the Jacobites. In truth, there ought to have been such a French fleet in existence as would have kept William in England, enabled James to hold Ireland, and succored the Jacobites in Scotland. For here, too, there was a party for the late king. The Covenanters, forced in 1660 to submit to the religious government they hated, had risen on James's fall, and in a convention, March of 1689, abolished episcopacy and proclaimed William and Mary. But the Highlanders had been raised in the Jacobite interest by Graham of Claverhouse, better known as Viscount Dundee, who roused the clans that hated the covenanting tribe of the Campbells, the great supporters of Whiggery, to fight for King James. They won a battle at Killiecrankie Pass in July 1689, but lost their leader, and with the fickleness that Celtic hosts have always shown, they at once dispersed. William endeavoured, when this formidable rising was over, to settle Scotland by establishing the Presbyterian form of church government. His efforts to stop the persecution of Episcopal clergy were in a great measure successful, and redound to his credit, though we cannot acquit him of all blame for the dastardly way in which the Macdonalds of Glencoe were murdered in the beginning of 1692 their chief had failed to comply with an order that all clans were to submit to the government by january first his submission a few days later was refused and william signed an order for the extermination of the clan which was carried out by brutal treachery instead of military execution by the summer of sixteen ninety one william was able to commence his great struggle with france the allies were already in arms and some fighting had taken place on various parts of the french frontiers the war is not interesting for it consisted so far as william was concerned in a stern struggle to keep his allies true to their promises and his parliaments to their interests and in marching out to meet the french armies which were personally conducted by louis so long as only sieges and no battles took place for when he could not hold a brilliant court round some starving garrison, the French king left his generals to fight the king of England. As William was a very unlucky commander, the advantages he secured by diplomacy among his allies and at Westminster were not infrequently lost when he faced a French army led by such a general as Luxembourg. But though often outmaneuvered and sometimes routed, William's true greatness always appeared more splendidly in defeat than in victory. Each summer a campaign took place, and it was merely a question which could continue to put men and money into the business longest. If the alliance broke up, or the Parliament refused supplies, William must lose. If France sickened with exhaustion, he might win. 
in sixteen ninety one william arrived on the frontiers only to find that the fortress of mons had passed into the hands of the french king april sixteen ninety one he left a parliament recently nerved to vote supplies by the burning of tynmouth which had followed the naval defeat of beachy head but a network of jacobite intrigue was spreading and while men like russell the seaman and marlborough the soldier were content with sending their expressions of duty and service to james the more active members of the party prepared plans for a rising while on the french shores armies were being collected for an attack upon england in may sixteen ninety two the french fleet was beaten and destroyed off cape laogue by russell who was not ashamed to write letters to james pleading the excuse that his professional reputation was at stake in the matter the descent upon england was thus put out of the question this was a sufficient revenge for the defeat at beachy head and france gave us little more trouble by sea meanwhile the french king and his court were watching the siege of namur which surrendered in june sixteen ninety two william who arrived too late to save it was then badly beaten by luxembourg at steenkerke august sixteen ninety two a second serious defeat at london in the following july brought the military prospects of the allies very low but in england matters were improving the factious spirit in parliament was shown when the whigs jealous of the tories proposed the triennial bill which would put an end to william's plan of getting a ministry to manage the parliament for as long as he could a general election every three years would give the party out of power a better chance the bill was passed but it was rejected by william who thus exercised his legal power of refusing to assent to a bill but the whigs were too strong to be neglected and as a compromise their champion somers was made lord keeper of the seal while the tory nottingham had to resign sunderland who was able to give good advice though unable to keep true to any principles suggested to william to make a united whig ministry and so keep his parliament in good humour the tories who had been in the ascendant for the last few years were losing ground they had no hearty belief in the war and their lack of energy in its conduct was a source of failure the whigs were also fortunate in securing at this time the strongest support they ever had the commercial interest of england not only those merchants whose ships had been lost when in sixteen ninety three the smyrna fleet was captured and its convoy dispersed by the french but all those who were concerned in the new financial expedients for it was an age of financial expedients a young and clever whig named montague had succeeded in raising loans for the war expenses by setting up the bank of england this meant that a body of men who negotiated the loans received from the government privileges by which they were enabled to secure a practical monopoly of the lucrative business of money-lending the tories soon grew jealous of this power for it played into the Whig hands by firmly attaching those men who lent the money to the government, from which alone they could hope for payment. They tried to secure similar advantages by what is known as the land bank. This was an absurd scheme for making money by the wholesale lending or mortgaging of land, but as many people wanted to borrow money and few to borrow land, the Bank of England won the day and soon became a powerful and important Whig institution 
with montague chancellor of the exchequer and his financial success on every tongue the campaign of sixteen ninety four was opened nothing beyond an unsuccessful attack upon the french harbour of brest need be mentioned the whigs were able to secure the triennial act for william did not care to veto it a second time it looked as if the war would be waged with vigour and the party strife at home be ended by the domination of the whigs and the war party at this moment a great blow fell upon william his wife to whom he was sincerely attached died suddenly of smallpox in december sixteen ninety four this blow from which it seemed at first as if the king himself would scarcely rally for a time seriously menaced his political position mary's presence upon the throne of her ancestors had in fact been a rallying point for tories and high churchmen it had been the means of securing a larger number of adherents for the government both in and out of parliament than could have been hoped for had william been without the much-needed aid of her popularity sweet temper and good sense but the fall of danby one of the last surviving tory ministers who was at this time accused of receiving bribes from the east india company brought the whigs further to the front and their combination was strong enough to stand the strain the third period of the reign was the most successful for william godolphin was now the only tory minister mary's sister the princess anne who had been estranged from the court by the jealous intrigues of her friend the countess of marlborough was now reconciled to william though marlborough was in disgrace owing to his dealings with st germain great financial efforts were made and in august sixteen ninety five william had the satisfaction of retaking namur with this decided success to back him the king returned and dissolved parliament with a view to gaining a further whig success in the elections he made a real effort to secure personal popularity by making a progress through the country visiting large towns and staying in the country houses of important men the whigs were largely victorious at the polls and a liberal war grant followed but there was also plenty of work to be done at home a bill to make trials for high treason more humane by allowing the prisoner to have the same legal advantages as in other trials was passed the whig financiers somers and montague assisted by locke and sir isaac newton carried through a much-needed scheme for amending the coinage a sound currency is the condition of a sound commerce and the whigs who were supported by the moneyed interest replaced the old thin and clipped silver by new and thicker coins of full weight the french were not inactive in spite of the fall of namur and the death of their best general luxembourg louis was willing to assist any rising in england and james's illegitimate son the duke of berwick crossed the channel in disguise but he found that like the french the english jacobites wished to see the others make the first move there was no general rising and louis was too business-like a plotter not to require something solid for his money early in sixteen ninety six however a plot was formed among some desperate men to attack and murder william when he went hunting at richmond fortunately a large party had to be enrolled in order to overcome his guards and there was a fair sprinkling of traitors among these would-be assassins the plot was betrayed and the result was all in william's favour an association was formed and swore to defend the king and maintain the succession of the princess anne 
thus the whigs won all along the line and in sixteen ninety seven william had a completely whig ministry a fairly loyal nation and a parliament ready to work with the government it was now clear that france was terribly exhausted by the gigantic efforts she had made to keep up the war along her entire frontier the king of england might therefore take advantage of this either to secure a peace or to strike a blow the former would disarm his foes at home who relied upon french assistance and william opened negotiations it was finally arranged that the french king should recognize william as king of england and anne as his successor he was to give up all that he had taken or conquered since the peace of sixteen seventy eight with the important exception of strasbourg which he insisted on retaining september tenth sixteen ninety seven the retention of this fortress was however a very trifle compared to the enormous accession of territory that louis hoped to acquire on the death of charles the second of spain it was now plain that the feeble life of that monarch was drawing to a close and europe was awed into a calm at the thought of the vastness of the issues at stake it was during this calm the fourth period of the reign that louis and william endeavoured to avert the threatening storm by a scheme for the partition of the hereditary dominions of the spanish crown there were numerous claimants but the great question lay between the imperial or austrian house and that of the bourbon the three royal houses of spain france and austria were united by various complicated intermarriages but so far as blood was concerned the dauphin had a clear right to the whole spanish dominion consisting of spain the indies sicily naples milan and the netherlands the danger of so great an accession of power to france had long been foreseen and by the treaty of the pyrenees sixteen fifty nine louis's wife had renounced all rights for herself and her descendants the dauphin's claim was therefore barred by international agreement the emperor leopold i had a claim through his mother which though not so good by pedigree was hampered by no renunciation a third claim passed to his daughter the electress of bavaria through her mother the younger sister of charles of spain but this was also barred by a treaty the houses of austria and france were each bound to resent so great a windfall coming to the other the young electoral prince of bavaria represented a third party whose accession to the crown of spain would at least keep out the direct heirs of both the rival powers and it was upon him that the great inheritance was settled by the famous first partition treaty arranged between william and louis english interests were concerned in as much as the union or close alliance of spain and france would be practically a veto upon english trade and commerce in the new world and the mediterranean louis was anxious to keep austria from the inheritance and to secure a further slice of european territory without fighting for it this arrangement therefore gave the indies spain and the netherlands to the bavarian prince french ambition was allayed by the offer of naples and sicily together with a small part of the north of spain Gipuzkoa. the archduke charles leopold's younger son received the duchy of milan this seemed a fair way out of the terrible dilemma but scarcely was it settled when the bavarian prince died of smallpox and the whole negotiation was rendered useless 
William had in his hands the whole management of these puzzling continental policies, but his great efforts to settle the matter out of court were cramped by the condition of affairs at home. No sooner was the Peace of Ryswick signed than the English nation ceased to support him. The tension of the continental struggle once over, a reaction began. The national fear and jealousy of a standing army broke out fiercely. There were three reasons why such a force was no longer dangerous as of old. William was not James II, and had no quarrel with English laws. The rapacity of Louis made it absolutely necessary to treat with him sword in hand. The Mutiny Act of 1689, by which Parliament granted special disciplinary powers over the army, was annually passed, and could be refused if the Houses had cause to distrust those who maintained the army. Without such powers, no army could be kept in order. But a Tory reaction was in progress, and the magnificent forces of William were reduced to 7,000 men. The favorite Dutch guards were sent home, though the king made a pathetic appeal to be allowed to retain them. The expenses of the late war gave the Tories a handle, and they insisted on resuming large grants of crown lands which William had foolishly given in some profusion to Dutch favorites. Men thought more of the taxation which would follow a fresh outburst of war than of making such war impossible by a bold policy. The death of Joseph of Bavaria made necessary a second partition treaty in which Louis found much advantage. The Archduke Charles was made heir to Spain and the Netherlands, which were both far enough from Austria to make this increase of Habsburg power unimportant. Louis still received for his son Naples and Sicily as well as Milan, which he hoped to exchange for Lorraine, a province long since practically his own by right of theft and occupation. Hardly was this arranged when the unhappy prince, whose dominions were thus meted out, died in the Escurial, November 1700. He had been persuaded at the last by those who succeeded in gaining influence over his weak and tortured mind to make a will by which all his dominions were to pass to Louis's grandson, Philip, Duke of Anjou. Thus, for a second time, the labors and cares of months were thrown away, and Louis, lightly breaking his treaty and his promise, accepted the will. The Pyrenees, as he proudly boasted, existed no longer, and all Western Europe had become the heritage of the Bourbons. To William, this was a severe blow. But the English people refused to share his alarm. The partition, with its addition to French power in the Mediterranean, was unpopular among the merchants, and they had little fear of a future policy so united on the part of France and Spain as to menace Europe in general or English ships in particular. This was the darkest moment in William's reign. He had been tricked abroad, humiliated at home, and there appeared no way out of the difficulty. Moreover, a succession difficulty seemed about to threaten in England itself. Anne's only son, the Duke of Gloucester, died in 1700, and as William's health was daily failing, a new scheme of succession was absolutely necessary if Jacobite hopes were to be disappointed. Long ago it had been suggested that the crown should pass after the death of Anne to the family of Sophia, electress of Hanover, who was a granddaughter of James I. The Act of Settlement, 1701, made this into law, 
and thus completed the work of the revolution the crown was to be strictly hereditary in the hanoverian family provided they were protestants at the same time the independence of the judges was secured they were now to be removed only after an address from both houses of parliament and several other important constitutional provisions added but strong jealousy of the dutch king and his favourites was still shown the fears of william were however speedily justified by the treaty of Ryswick, dutch soldiers were allowed to garrison certain fortresses on the frontiers of the netherlands since spanish troops were neither efficient nor trustworthy louis in seventeen o one occupied these barrier fortresses and thus once more showed his contempt for the public law of europe there was now no means of shirking the question of war the commercial interest was alarmed and party strife ran high the tories were not inclined to yield their position when the war feeling began they impeached four members of william's government and imprisoned some freeholders who presented the kentish petition in favour of war but for william though he had been obliged to yield his dearest plans and see his efforts thwarted fate had one triumph in store in september seventeen o one james the second died at st germain the french king had really only one more solemn engagement left to break he seized this opportunity to break it and ostentatiously recognized james son the pretender as king of england this was enough to complete the overthrow of the tories and to give william the enthusiasm he wished to rouse parliament was dissolved amid national clamours for war against the french the whigs who gained the advantage at the polls voted supplies and passed a bill to secure the protestant succession once more the king had the english behind him but for william there was to be no part in the mighty struggle which was now to break the power of his foe and raise english arms and an english general to the highest pinnacle of military glory a fall from his horse stretched him on a bed of sickness from which he never moved at the very moment when one animated by a lifelong passion for war against france would have most cared to live william breathed his last at kensington on march eighth seventeen o two chapter nine